How's everybody doing? This is a, the front row is awake. The rest of you are like, Ugh. that's okay. That's okay. Uh, most of you have noticed I am not Corey. This is not the normal past. I know, right? Um, uh, we wanted to give Corey a, a break over the holidays, so you have me for a week, but he will be back, I promise. Uh, my name is David Ashworth. Uh, we've been working on an Eagleville campus for a little over a year now, and this last year we, we got really close on two locations, but we realized that this is not what God wanted for us, and we're still in talks, and we're working, and, and Michelle and I, it's kind of interesting, we, we actually have been in Smyrna for over 20 years, and we have now moved to Eagleville. And, and it's really uh, a different type of pace. I don't know if you know much about Smyrna now. Smyrna is kind of like Little Murfreesboro. It is growing. It's booming. Eagleville is a much smaller place and a much simpler location. So we're, we're about out in the country. Um, so it's interesting. It's kind of changed the dynamics of my wife and I. As I will call her and I'll say things like this that I've never said before in 20 years of marriage. I said, honey, I'm in town do you need milk, bread, like a tornado's coming or something, you know, right? And so there's things that we're getting used to. And, and I, I got a few acres, not many, but a few. So I plan on having a garden again. My, my wife may or may not have sang the farmersonly.com commercial to me a few times. And, and so with that, we are love it, loving it. We love the people. We love the place. And we're excited to see what God is going to do this year. We're going to start a Bible study at our house out there. It's going to be really awesome. So Corey sends me a text message, and he says, Dave, um, why don't you talk about the spirit of Antichrist? And I look, and I go, great. Next time, give me intestinal washing from Leviticus. That would have been easier. <laughs> but all of this being said, uh, I actually love Revelation. I love the, the letters of John towards the end of the Bible, and uh, I'm excited uh, about the lesson. So what I want to do is I begin it. I want to, I want to ask you a simple question. A very simple question, but here's the thing. When I ask you the question, I don't want you to presume you completely know the answer to it. The question is simply this. Who is the God you follow? Now, here's the deal, right? I know we are in church, and I know the answer is Jesus, but if somebody asked you, who is he? How well do you know him? Because you see, it's important to know how to answer the question because we live in a time where Jesus says before he returns, there's going to be many claiming to be Messiah. Some are even going to be claiming to be Jesus himself. Matthew 24 on this one says this. Watch out that no one deceives you, for many will come in my name saying, I am the Messiah, and they will deceive many. This is happening uh, during, during Jesus' times after he's, after he's gone and John's dealing with this, and it happens in our day. I want to tell you the story of a church uh, um, from a few decades ago, and, and this is what the article says. It says, no one expected it would happen, especially with this model congregation. They provided a heated swimming pool for underprivileged kids, horses for inner city children to ride. They gave scholarships for deserving students. They provided housing for senior citizens. They even had an animal shelter, a medical facility, an outpatient care facility, and a drug rehabilitation program. Congressman Walter Mondale wrote about this pastor, and he said he was an inspiration to us all. The Secretary of Health, Education, and Welfare cited this pastor, and he said he, this pastor knew how to inspire hope. 
He was committed to people in need. He counseled prisoners and juvenile delinquents. He started a job placement center. He opened rest homes and homes for the mentally handicapped. He had a health clinic. He organized a vocational training center, provided free legal aid. He founded a community center. He preached about God. He even claimed to cast out demons, do miracles, and heal. Lofty words for a pastor and his congregation. Pretty extensive resume. So the question is, where is this congregation today? What is it doing now? The answer to that is that the church is dead. Literally dead. Not spiritually dead. Literally dead. The pastor, because he, he feared a nuclear holocaust and for some other reasons, moves the, the, the church to Guyana. And death occurred today. The pastor called the members to the pavilion. They heard his hypnotic voice over the speaker system. And from all around the, the farm area where they had, they came. He sat in his large chair and he spoke into a handheld microphone about the beauty of death and the certainty that they would meet again. The people, when they came, they were surrounded by armed guards. There was a vat of cyanide-laced Kool-Aid that was brought out. Most of the members willingly drank the Kool-Aid. Those who did resist, they were forced to drink. But first, it was the babies and the children. It was about 80 of those. They were given the drink first. Then the adults, women and men, leaders and followers, and finally the pastor. Everything was calm for a few minutes. And then the convulsions began. The screams filled the sky. Mass confusion broke out. And a few minutes after that, the entire, it was completely over. The members of the People's Temple Christian Church, they were all dead, over 900 of them. One article said 913. So was their leader, Jim Jones. You see, it is from this incident that's called the Jamestown Massacre where we get the phrase, don't drink the Kool-Aid. What's interesting about Jim Jones is he started out as a Methodist. At one point, he was a Pentecostal street preacher, but he lost his way. In the midst of the process, he eventually began to call himself the incarnate Christ. In other words, Christ in flesh. But that's not the hard part. The hard part is, is that an entire congregation of people were lacking the biblical grounding to know the truth that Jim Jones had departed from what the Bible said to, to live. And unfortunately, it's the epidemic of the modern church. We don't read our Bibles. We don't truly invest in what we say we believe. And it limits our lives. It limits our lives. Albert Moeller, he's an advocate for biblical literacy. He makes a statement. I kind of condensed it so it fits a slide, and that's why I didn't put his name by it, but he simply says this. People will never live greater than their beliefs, and people will never believe more than they know. People will never live greater than their beliefs, and people will never believe more than they know. And people choose every day to know of Jesus rather than to actually know him. We rarely invest in our beliefs. We often don't take the time to open this book, to know what God loves and what God hates, 
to know what to stay away from and to walk, what to walk towards, what to guard ourselves against and what to open ourselves up to. It's interesting, the Barna Group, they've done a number of studies on this. They do statistical studies. I want you to understand the state of where we're in right now as our country. First and foremost, fewer than half of all adults can name all four Gospels, Matthew, Mark, Luke, and John. Secondly, 82% of Americans believe that the phrase, God helps those who help themselves, is actually in the Bible. It's not. Now, born-again, Bible-believing Christians did better than 82%, but they actually only did better by 1%. 81% of Bible-believing Christians believe that's a verse. Another Barna poll, 12% of adults believe that Jonah Ark was Noah's wife. <laughs> See how they made the connection there. I, I get it. I get it. I understand. It's not true. Please. But here's the dangerous part, Right? Because of our biblical illiteracy, we're now passing it on to our kids. They polled graduating seniors, and half of them believed that Sodom and Gomorrah were husband and wife. In another study, people believe that Billy Graham taught the Sermon on the Mount. So there's phases that happen here, right? When we start to lose hold of truth, we will make up truth. But then there's another phase of this, that as we loosen hold of the truth, we then find that whatever we want to be true, we'll make it true. In other words, without biblical truth, I will make a truth. If I don't study my Bible to know God, I will believe that I can determine God with my own mind. Without the Bible, I can make a God, little g, who is okay with the life I've chosen for myself, that he's okay with what I look at and where I go, and that this God I fashioned for myself, he's okay with what I do. And many have done this. But ultimately, if I rely on my own thoughts rather than the Bible to determine God, I will fashion a God that looks just like me. And as you'll see, many, many have done this. Again, Albert Moeller, he, he wrote the article that's got a number of the statistics I shared with you. He, he ends the article with the following statement that I just sat and just stared at, probably for about a good 20 minutes. He says this, this generation must get deadly serious about the problem of biblical illiteracy or a frightening large number of Americans, Christians included, will go on thinking that Sodom and Gomorrah lived happily ever after. And as we talk about the Antichrist in the book of Revelation, the Bible also warns us of the Antichrist in the here and now. And we've seen them. You can look back at news and you can look at history of people who claim to be Jesus with disastrous results. Now combine that with a generation of believers who don't know the truth, so in not knowing the truth, they fall for the lie. And before Corey takes us further into Revelation, we're going to talk about the spirit of Antichrist that is alive and present today. This is not a future thing. This is a now thing. So if you have your Bibles, go to 1 John 2. It's near the end of the book. And keep your Bibles handy. We're going to do a few things today together. Not many, I promise. But we're going to do a few things. It's going to be good. So I'm going to read 1 John 2, 18 through 23. 
which says this, children, it is the last hour. And as you have heard that the Antichrist is coming, even now, many Antichrists have come. By this we know that it is the last hour. They went out from us, but they did not belong to us. For if they had belonged to us, they would have remained with us. However, they went out so that it might be made clear that none of them belongs to us. But you have an anointing from the Holy One, and all of you know the truth. I have not written to you because you don't know the truth, but because you do know it, and because no lie comes from the truth. Who is the liar, if not the one who denies that Jesus is the Christ? This one is the Antichrist, the one who denies the Father and the Son. No one who denies the Son has the Father, and he who confesses the Son has the Father as well. So John begins this passage, with, and he's saying it's the last hour. During this time period after Jesus was resurrected and ascended to heaven, they would use terms like we're in the last days, we're in the last times, and John here says last hour. Now the terms refer to the time between the first coming and second coming of Jesus. The disciples lived as if he could come back at any moment, So here we are thousands of years later and Jesus hasn't come back yet. So we understand that they they didn't live understanding that that there was a time basis, that there was an urgency. So understand why the terminology is important. Living in the last days as believers is to live with the urgency and the priority the gospel requires. And John is using this term last hour because he's saying the battle is going to intensify and what's he, what he's experiencing is, is all these false teachers have come out and, he, and they're, they're driven by the spirit of Antichrist and he's saying it, it is getting more intense. So here we are, and in my personal belief, we are way too casual and comfortable with the gospel. John's increasing the urgency from moving from day to hour. And the times we live in call for urgency. Because what John says is the spirit of Antichrist is here. Two chapters later in four, uh, chapter four, verse three, he says, but every spirit that does not confess Jesus is not from God. This is the spirit of the Antichrist, which you have heard is coming even now. It is already in the world. Now, scholars, they fall in three camps on this idea of the spirit of Antichrist, that it's an actual spirit, it's a demonic agenda, or it's a combination of both. So, so scholars fall in three camp, camps when they look at this. But John, nevertheless, he's dealing with the outward effects, and he's dealing with these teachers who are distorting Christianity around Ephesus when he writes us letters. If you look historically, some of them were spiritists who say Jesus came spiritually but not physically. Others were saying he wasn't the Messiah. Others were saying he wasn't God. Others were saying he wasn't the Son. Others were saying he was one of multiple ways to be saved, and all of these people were calling themselves Christians while doing so. But what we have to understand as a church today is that nothing has changed. We have to have the urgency because the gospel is still being challenged and being distorted. I know this is hard to believe, but even in our generation, it's happening. I'm going to give you two things today in a very broad sense that we're going to cover. First and foremost, societies have distorted Christianity. 
There's a statement by Richard Halverson that I've held on to for years. And he says this, and this is in your notes. In the beginning, the church was a fellowship of men and women centering on the living Christ. Then the church moved to Greece where it became a philosophy. Then it moved to Rome where it became an institution. Next, it moved to Europe where it became a culture. And finally, it moved to America where it became an enterprise. Societies and people have distorted the Christian faith. And we are being warned to commit ourselves exclusively to the truth of Jesus. And many societies have placed their own biases on our faith to further modern thought or to deal with modern issues, to gain traction, to gain support. But the word of God transcends all of this. And more than Jesus ever offered a solution for a specific need in society, he offers the answer for our entire lives. It's not just about one need in one place. He offers the entire answer for our entire lives. And it happens in America. You can go on amazon.com right now and search for Jesus would be a Republican. Jesus would be a Democrat. And there are books that you can either purchase or download and read why he would be that way. And if you don't like the read, you can get the t-shirt that says Jesus would be a Republican or Jesus would be a Democrat. So which is it? Democrat or Republican? Which one would Jesus be? Sounds silly when I ask the question, doesn't it? Can I give you a real answer? Jesus would be neither. He has his own kingdom. He doesn't need ours to reign. He does not need ours to reign. If you look at the life of Jesus, he treated politics as secondary to doing the will of the Father. Society tries to influence faith. In our day, if they can get your faith, they can get your vote. I don't care what party you're in, but that, that's, that's definitely a truth. So John, he has to deal with this group of people that are specifically going out and they're distorting the faith. These people eventually would, would become the Gnostics and that's another lesson for another time. But in this, I'm gonna do something in a very respectful way today. A very respectful way today. I, I want to cover two modern distortions of the Christian faith. And I, I've just picked two, there's more than two. And here's the deal before we get into this. We talk with these people. They come to our door and they're in our media, in our church. They're our family. They love us. We love them. And when they talk to you, they are kind and they share beliefs with portions of our faith, but it's not the same faith. You see, in this church, we major on the majors and we minor on the minors. For example, if you are a pre-tribber and Corey's a post-tribber, we can understand why we disagree on that and we can still focus on the love and deity of Jesus. But to hold true to that statement as a church, we also have to major on the majors. And there are beliefs that are different than what we read in the Bible. So in a very loving way, we are going to take a look at the institution of both Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. And here's what I'm going to ask you today is I, we're going to look at the institution. Never, never, never categorize a person who follows these beliefs. Ask them what they believe. 
have the love and decency to know what they personally believe. Not every Baptist believes the same thing. But we're gonna talk about the institutions today. But with this information, I am not asking you to make them your villains. I'm not asking you to make them your adversaries or to shun them. I am asking you to make them your burden. So what I did today is what I didn't do is I didn't go to an angry Christian's website or book who hates Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons to give you a bunch of, of information that explained to you and proved to you why I'm right. I went to their websites. JW.org is the primary site for Jehovah's Witnesses. LDS is the primary website for Mormons. And these are what the institutions believe. We're going to start with Jehovah's Witnesses. First and foremost, Jesus was Michael, the archangel in heaven. Personally, I cannot find a biblical stance for this. Secondly, in their beliefs, Jesus was not God, but a normal human being. He was the first created being as Michael, but when he came to earth, he was a, a normal human being. And he, he was not physically resurrected. He was resurrected as a spirit creature. If you look in the Old Testament, sometimes angels, what they would do is they would present themselves as humans to people, and they believe Jesus did this. By the way, I have links to their websites on every one of these points if you want them. Next, there is no trinity in the Jehovah's Witnesses' belief. Father, Son, and Spirit are not one in their belief. And in this belief system, Jesus is to be honored but not worshiped because he is not Jehovah. And one here on the Holy Spirit, because there is no Trinity, the Holy Spirit is not a person. He is God's active force. That is their belief. Now what happened is, and this is my belief, this is not on the website, that Jehovah's Witnesses created their own translation as a result of beliefs called the New World Translation. They had five translators, and I'm going to give you their names for a reason. Nathan, Nathan Knorr, Fred Franz, Albert Schroeder, George Genghis, and Milton Henschel. Upon investigation, Fred Franz is the only one who had any knowledge of all the biblical languages. He studied two years of Greek in college, but not biblical Greek. He was allegedly self-taught in Hebrew, but in a Scottish court under oath, he failed a simple Hebrew test. Now, this is where I need you to grab your Bibles for a second. Because of their doctrine, their translators changed the Bible to meet their beliefs. So if you have your Bible, go to John 1.1. John 1.1. Today, I'm going to use the ESV because the ESV is, is considered by many scholars closer to a word-for-word -word translation to, for the Greek and Hebrew. But we have various translations around the room, and they're, if they're, they're biblical translations. They are good. Some of you have NIV. Some of you use the New King James or the King James. Whatever it is that you use, the HCSB. And more than likely, we're all going to look at John 1, 1 together, fourth book in the New Testament. And here's what it says in our Bibles. At least we're going to look at the various translations and you're going to see that they all line up. Even though they were translated by different people and different organizations, John 1, 1 says this, or something very similar. In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was God. Your translation probably has something very, very similar to this. Now, because Jehovah's Witnesses have a different belief, their translated, translators translated this passage differently. Theirs says this, 
In the beginning was the Word, and the Word was with God, and the Word was a God. Little g. That's their translation. I'm going to give you one more. If you go to the very beginning of the book, Genesis 1.1. Again, I'll read from the ESV. And it simply says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. The earth was, for, was without form and void, and darkness was over the face of the deep. And the Spirit of God was hovering over the face of the waters. This is a picture of the Holy Spirit here. This is a Jehovah's Witness translation. It says this. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Now the earth was formless and desolate, and there was darkness upon the surface of the watery deep. And God's active force was moving about over the surface of the waters. It's interesting, the differences. I'm going to give you a, a, a summarized biblical answer because I'm not going to go into detail. But simply this, the, the Bible verified over multiple translations. We just did this today. Confirms the relationship and deity of Father, Son, and Holy Spirit. Christians worship Jesus because he is the Son of God. The Holy Spirit is clearly not a force, but a person of the Trinity. And Jesus physically died and physically rose again for our sins. Now again, this is the institution, but this is 8.23 million people. So now I'm going to quickly shift and I'm going to cover Mormonism. Mormonism, by the way, is 16.1 million people as of 2017. And all of my information is from LDS.org. And here is their belief, straight from their website. The Christian church is corrupted and Mormons are the restored church. The church was restored in 1820 by Joseph Smith. God the Father, he was once a normal human being like you and me, but progressed to Godhood. And likewise, humans can go through what is called an exaltation process to become gods themselves. Jesus and Lucifer are spirit brothers from the Father. And in, in heaven, people have both a divine mother and a divine father. That is their belief. Now, I'll be fair to Mormons. The divine mother is not to be worshipped, only the divine father. But together in heaven, they produce spirits for people. That is the belief. And much like Jehovah's Witnesses, there is no trinity. God, Son, and Spirit are united in purpose, but they're separate, and they're called the Godhead. Now, Joseph Smith, he modified the King James Version. He's got, got a translation they don't predominantly use today called the, the JST, but he also has the Book of Mormon, and I'm going to quote the Book of Mormon for you in just a, for, for one verse here. This is Nephi 29.6 in the Book of Mormon. It says, Thou fool, uh, my old English is so bad, so bear with me here. Thou fool, that shall, that shall say, A Bible, we have got a Bible, and we need no more Bible. Have ye attained a Bible, save it were by the Jews? Here's the thing. If I could put this in English, what I see, modern English, stick with me. It is foolish to think you only need a Bible. In Mormonism, the Bible is not enough. This is straight from their website. Mormons revere the Bible, but do not believe it is without error. You also need the Book of Mormon materials to go with it. The, the Book of Mormon, the Doctrine and Covenants, the Pearl of Great Price, and the words of modern prophets and apostles. 
and apostles. And as I was doing my research for this lesson, probably the most difficult thing I had to watch, there was a Christian evangelist and he goes to Utah and he stands outside a Mormon temple. And in a very loving and respectful way, the, the conversation was not heated. They just had a conversation. I, I thought he, he did a really good job with this. He asked them two questions. Do you believe it is possible that God the Father could have been a sinner like us in a past mortal probation? So in other words, when God the Father was a human being like us, that's their belief, could he have been a sinner? Then the second question he asked them was, does it bother you that you would be worshiping a God who was once like us in the sense that he was a sinner? And in the 17-minute video, he gets varying answers. But but the first person he talked to when he asked if God the Father could have been a sinner, the one Mormon responded simply with this, I do. I think making mistakes is the essential part of the learning process. If you follow logic and reason, then it's a definite, distinct possibility. It doesn't make him any less powerful or anything. And then they ask him the second question, does it bother you? And he says, no, it makes me more comfortable actually in the sense that we have a hope to overcome. You know if he can overcome and become as great as he is, then certainly we have hope to overcome all our trials and sinful natures as well. It's interesting, the Bible, in the Bible, God calls himself, I am. In other words, he, he is never changing. He's the same yesterday, today, forever, before time to eternity. He even goes on to say, I am that I am. In other words, I don't change. Another person, it actually was a lady. She was with another, she and her husband were with another couple and she was kind of the spokeswoman for the group and they asked her if God the Father could have been a sinner as a human being. With a, with a smile on her face, she goes, I think so, yeah. Then asked, how does it make her feel? And she said, awesome, that I am able to become God. The final one I'll tell you, they asked him if, they th if he thought God the Father could have been a sinner. And the man answered yes. And then they, they asked him, how did it make him feel? And he said this, it makes me feel more closer to him eventually. That eventually with practice and perfection in myself. And whatever skills I need to develop, I can become like him. And I cringed in my chair. It hurts me to believe that, some, that, that somebody believes this. Biblical response here. Just a summary. God alone is above all creation. He is creator. He has no need for a wife to produce spirits for us. He is creator. People do not follow God to become gods. We follow God because he loves us and saved us from our sins. Now, here's the thing. There's so much more to both of these beliefs, but at the same time, I want you to understand there are beliefs that differ from the Christian faith. And again, this is what the institution, this is what leadership believes. Do not throw them into a category and write them off. Ask them what they believe. Ask them what they believe to be true. Take the time to talk to the individual. We are called to love them. But the simple warning for all of us is this. 
Any belief that diminishes the deity of Jesus or elevates the deity of man has lost perspective of the biblical Christ. Now, I didn't come here today with a vendetta against Jehovah's Witnesses and Mormons. I came here today with a burden for the truth. And it broke my heart when I put the two together that a combined total of over 24 million people either believe they're going to become gods or they believe Jesus is not to be worshiped. That can't be okay, 24 million people. And here's the thing, they knock on our doors. They knock on our doors. And we don't say a thing. Michelle and I were so bad at this. We would get, the doorbell would ring and I'm like, oh my gosh, there's the white shirt and black ties. And she's like, I see a bike, I see a bicycle helmet. Hide, it's the Mormons. <laughs> and we would sit and we would just wait for them to go away. And I had to ask God to forgive me. I had to ask him to forgive me. Church, if the spirit of Antichrist is here and distorting the word of God and 24 million people have departed from the idea that God alone is God and Jesus is both Lord and God, the only way they're going to be brought back is by the Holy Spirit and Christians willing to be the light. After I repented, when Michelle and I were, were moving from Smyrna to Eagleville, two Jehovah's Witnesses came into my driveway. I didn't tell them I was a pastor up front because I knew they would go, Pew! they'd be gone. But I got into a conversation with them. It was about a 25-minute conversation about Scripture. It was respectful. It was loving. But it was, a, it was a declaration of why I believe this. They explained to me what they believed. I explained to them why I believed what I believed. I told them I was a pastor. I told them that I would pray for them offered them waters because I knew they were going to walk the neighborhood. But here's the thing is, I didn't get militant. I didn't avoid them. I did what I believe God called me to do, and that was to share the truth. It is not my job to convert. It's the Holy Spirit's job. It is my job to tell the truth. It is your job to tell the truth. We have to be willing to speak. Do we have the urgency required for the times we live in? Do we have the urgency or do we sit silently in our houses hoping they'll go away when God brings 24 million people who have departed from the biblical Jesus to our doorsteps? What do we do? What do we do? Last part, this is 1 John 2, 24 through 27. What you have heard from the beginning is to remain in you. If what you have heard from the beginning remains in you, then you will remain in the Son and in the Father. And this is the promise that he himself made to us, eternal life. I have written these things to you concerning those who are trying to deceive you. As for you, the anointing you received from him remains in you, and you don't need anyone to teach you. Instead, his anointing teaches you about all things and is true and is not a lie, just as it has taught you remain in him. So John, in the midst of the spirit of Antichrist and all the false teachers, he's encouraging this group of believers to remain in the truth. And we also have been called to hold on to the real Jesus. 
not the one that is being distorted by the spirit of Antichrist or by people. We have a real urgency to know and live out the word. But John also says something interesting here that among the Antichrist, he's addressing a group of people who have already been taught the word and, and they have learned from God's anointing. What does that mean? Do you know that, that Corey, myself, Greg, or someone you listen to on a podcast, none of us are your ultimate teachers. None of us. The Holy Spirit is your ultimate teacher. Jesus says this of the Holy Spirit. He says, when the spirit of truth comes, he will guide you into all truth. So to lay this out, what happens is, is you may hear a teaching and you submit that teaching to God and, and ask God to convict you of the teaching and how you should respond. You compare that to the word of God to make sure that, that you, are, you are hearing the right thing. John says, test the spirits. And then at the same time, Jesus has given us the church where you are surrounded by other believers who do the same thing and they confirm in you what God has given you. This is how you remain. Jesus says it this way, we worship in both spirit and truth. And it is in this commitment that you, you hold steadfast to the truth. Despite all the lies of the world around us, you get to choose Jesus. You get to choose Jesus. Now here's the thing, at the beginning of this, I asked you a question. And what I'm hoping is, the question has a little bit more meaning now. Who is the God you follow? Do you know him? Are you ready? Do you have the urgency? Is that within you? Because when you read the word, you, when you commit yourself to it, when you obey it and you live by it, it is how you hold on to Jesus, the real Jesus. And the second thing that John answers in this passage, where does the real truth of God lead you? Where does it lead you? For, for those who follow Jim Jones, it led to a literal death. For others, it's a departure from the idea that the Father, Son, and Spirit are one and are exclusively God. But for us, when we hold on to the truth of the word, it leads us to Jesus himself. So in our passage, John says it leads us to eternal life. But here's the thing. Most people don't understand how glorious eternal life is. I listened to one commentator. He says, if your view of heaven is boring, your faith will probably follow suit. So here's the thing. I want to share something that I teach in the following Jesus class. This is Revelation 21, 3 and 4. And it says this. Then I look and heard a loud voice from the throne. God's dwelling is with humanity and he will live with them. They will be his peoples and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. Death will be no more. Grief, crying, and pain will be no more because the previous things have passed away. Now what I'm about to tell you, I probably read this verse a hundred times before I understood what I'm about to tell you. If I take this passage literally, if I take this passage literally, I believe there's going to be a time where we hold on to truth and we go through this season. But a time is going to come in your future and in mine 
where we are going to be face to face with the God of the universe. And I don't know if it's because of who you've lost, what you've been through, how much you suffered, just from being weary. Maybe you're overwhelmed by his presence. But no matter what in here, what the Bible says, everyone in this room, myself, everyone on this planet who is his will stand before him and you're going to break down. You're going to weep. This passage says the God of the universe is going to wipe every tear from your eye. Every tear. Now look at the end of it. After he wipes the tears from your eyes, you will never cry again. Never. The God of the universe will be with you the very last time you cry. And that's just a glimpse, just a glimpse of what's awaiting us. Don't let your view of heaven be boring. Don't let your view of truth be boring. You see, we live out of faith that overcomes the spirit of Antichrist and a faith that overcomes false teachers. And we hold on to Jesus. And as we hold on to him, eventually what we learn is that he has been holding on to us. Whether we know it or not, he has been holding on to us. If I could bring this to, to a close, three things. Take this with you, please. Do you live with the urgency the gospel requires? If we are in the last hour, as John says, are we clinging to the truth of Jesus in a world full of antichrist and false teachers? Jesus says many will be deceived. He said, if, if possible, even the elect, in other words, those who may really be following him, we must ground ourselves in the truth of Jesus. And then secondly, do we hold on to the gospel for our own lives? And in holding on to the gospel in troubled times, in turbulent times of what we're studying in the book of Revelation and even what we experience now, that no matter what we face and no matter what we lose, it is his love that sustains us. Even after death, mourning, and crying are no more, it is his love that sustains us. And then finally, do we live out the truth to rescue the lost? If God is bringing 24 million people to our doorsteps, are we willing to hold so closely to the truth of Jesus that we would share it with others? Christine Kane, in her book Undaunted, she, she tells a story. And she and some friends were out on a safari and they were they were hiking and, and, and actually they were in a Jeep and, and the Jeep, uh, they wrecked the Jeep and they're out in the middle of nowhere and they're trying to find their way back. But in the area where they're out overseas, that was a really remote area and so they tried to find their way back and they, they lost, they were lost. They're out in the woods, they're out in the middle of nowhere and they realize they've gone the, the wrong way. They're wounded, they're cold, they're tired, they're dehydrated, they're hungry. It's, it's been two days and one of the guys with him says, I think I know the way back. I'm going to go. And they're sitting there utterly and, and completely uh, unaware of how they'll ever get out of the situation. And so what they do is they know their friend's gone and they climb up to a high place. And then as they look over the horizon, they see a helicopter coming because they thought they were going to die until they saw this helicopter. 
the helicopter lets down everything that uh, they need to, to come up, and they, they start raising them up one by one. And as Christine is, is, is raised up, she said she felt God talk to her as she was rising up over the trees. She, heard, she felt like she heard the voice of God say, never forget what it's like to be lost. Never forget. And if 24 million people are coming to our doorsteps, can we have a conversation? Can we love them? Can, can we invite them into our homes and talk with them? What do you do with the truth that's given to you? You see, church, it's late. John says it's the last hour. It's late. And God is calling us to the faith that these times require for us, of us. What are we going to do? Will you bow your heads, please? To my left and right are going to be people that are willing to pray with you. If you are within the sound of my voice and you realize that you need to take the word of God more seriously. We are at the beginning of 2019. I'm asking you if you're going to do this, if you're going to go deeper with God this year, come and pray with one of these people. Make a commitment together that you're going to grow deeper and closer to God. Do not settle for yesterday's faith. Do not settle for yesterday's faith. God calls you ever closer, ever deeper to himself. And maybe you're new to this and you don't even know how to get started. If you have any questions about Christianity, someone will, will be to my right. I'll be over there. If you have any questions, please come talk to me. And finally around us, wherever you see a lamp, there is communion. This is the, the, the body and the blood of Jesus shed for you. And here's the thing. Take a moment, we give this to you so that every week when you come, you can remember everything that's been done so that you would be saved, so that you could know Jesus, so the God of the universe would wipe every tear from your eyes. God, we love you. We thank you so much for your word. God, guide us into all truth through your Holy Spirit. And as we start this year, God, let us live for you. Let us love others who believe differently, God. God, but let us know the truth. Let us cling to you with a passion, with the urgency these times require of us. God, thank you for this day. We love you in Jesus' name. Amen. Thank you guys very much.